Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome back to my conversation with Courtney Turner on the origins and early days of the Tavistock Institute. If you missed part one, you can listen to that commercial-free in the Deep Dive's premium feed on iTunes. Sign up now and get a 30-day free trial. So, what's next? So now we're at the Tavistock Institute, and what year is that? So that officially, it started in 1946, that's when they got the the funding, but the uh, but they separated the clinic and the institute in 1946. Oh, sorry. And is that when Rockefeller started mm-hmm. funding? It was his it? grant that made it possible. Okay. Yep. That's when they... And I wanted to also add, I thought this, this was interesting, but one of uh, John Rawling Reese's students at the shaft, it was Supreme Headquarters of Allied Ex- Expeditionary Force uh, during 1943 and World War II. His student was Henry, Henry Kissinger. Get I, out of town. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So um, Adam from Deborah Gets Red Pilled yeah. wanted, wants to talk about meta, I think it was called like meta politics or parapolitics or something. He's like how all, so he, his whole goal is to get his mother-in-law to like wake up and it just bums her out. So it's been a long journey and now he's going to where if you get up high enough and you connect all these dots, like you have to believe that there is some, you know, what you see is not what you get. And these, I think you should do this for him or I'll take the notes and do it for you. But this is uh, yeah, exactly- Yeah, we have to do, we can do it together. Is, oh, that's great. Whatever yeah, oh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, but this parapolitics thing is exactly what all these connections make me think of. Like that, when you say they, and I've had people say, what do you mean by they? And I'll start telling them. I'll yeah. say, well, if you do, like, if you want to look at the pharma one, it's this. If you want to look at the pure politics, if you want to look at the media one, it's this. If you want to look at academics, it's this. And then these are the people, and this is the organizations that they connect. And they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And it's like, no, it's the na- you can name names. But yeah, Kissinger, of course. Wow. That surprises me, though, because he's got that other thing. Um, I think through Harvard, there was a big, I forget so he what the was, Yeah, so he, uh, it was a CIA-funded program that he helmed at Harvard where yeah. he recruited Klaus Schwab. So Yes, he, that was it. Uh, yes, it was Johnny Vedmore talking about that, yes. He, uh, he recruited Klaus Schwab along with uh, Herman Kahn and Kenneth Galbraith. Right, he brought wow, him to yes. head the European Management Symposium yeah. in 1970. And then in 1971, that became the World Economic Forum. Right. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. So he, but before that, we've got a Kissinger dot at Tavistock. Yes. He, okay. well, he's the student of uh, John Rawling Reese, who was one of the directors of Tavistock. And I mean, Rawling Reese was just a monster. He's the one who basically says that the social scientist should be this secret fifth column entity. This is why they're so shadowy. 
He, he, and that, they that was are, literally though. his whole method is that they should be the fifth column. And the primary institutions that he said they should infiltrate, obviously they went way beyond this, but he, the primary ones they were targeting were the church and education. Yeah, th- those are their two that, that that Reese was really focused on. But of course, this extends to you know, media, culture, entertainment. I mean, from the very beginning, it was entertainment because he brought the 25 authors. We didn't have television, you know, in the beginning of uh, Tavistock. Uh, they certainly didn't have the big screen movie theaters, but they had uh, they had books and they had poets and they had uh, theatrical performances. So, the, And, of course, they had journals and uh, media publications. So he brought these 25 authors, very well-known authors, to write the propaganda. And I believe and you would know if it's true, that the advent of radio was intended for propaganda purposes. Yes. And so that was Rockefeller. It was Tavistock. It was Rockefeller. uh, It was a Rockefeller Foundation with uh, Princeton. What was it? Uh, The Rockefeller Foundation funded office of radio research at Princeton University, and it was established to study the influence of radio on different groups and listeners uh, that they had brought Kentrell, who it was Hadley Kentrell Alport, who was in charge of the U.S. for the, the Tavistock Institute. He was like the U.S. Uh, kind of arm of Tavistock. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was interesting because Kentrell was roommates with Nelson Rockefeller, who became vice president. Nelson Rockefeller was also the uh, relative, the descendant of. Uh, Ald, uh, Nelson Aldrich Rockefeller, who gave us the income tax, right? Oh, and and maybe the Fed. Yeah, well, it was connected. I think he was yeah, instrumental he was of, in the he Fed. He was one yeah. of the Jekyll Island. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so that's, it's all Dots. connected. It really Dots, is. Man. It's so creepy. So, uh, so the clinic arose in 1946, was established mm-hmm. in 1946. And I think, can you... Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you have another timeline of progression or whatever, but I feel like they really hit their stride in the 60s. But what happened from A to B? Because the 60s is where you have, like, Marianne Faithful and Mm. um, Mick Jagger and stuff. Well, yeah. Okay, so let's see. But the 50s, they must have been incubating these ideas. In the 50s is MKUltra. So oh oh, oh right oh. oh Ted Kaczynski was a was a victim of that mm-hmm. in I mean I don't know if they called it that at, at that time but yeah it, it was formerly MK Ultra as of 1953 so pretty early in the 50s well he was a I don't know if you um, I assume you were aware of this but that he was had was in involved in a psychological experiment at Harvard. He was the youngest person ever to go to Harvard mm-hmm. and uh, at that time. And they did a psychological experiment where they had him do presentations to upperclassmen. Mm-hmm. And they secretly told the upperclassmen to mock him relentlessly and ridicule his ideas just week after week, month after month, and to see how socially isolated he would get. And they did this to a few people. Oh, wow. So I guess that worked. <laughs> but anyway, so... Th- People think that was technically MK Ultra, although I don't think, you know, like the guy who did it was related, but I don't think that it was actually. Like you don't know that it was actually under the umbrella. Actually, right. It's the same right. tactics, though. I mean, it's essentially. Right. It was like just a Harvard mind. psychologist, yeah. Yeah, it's trauma based mind control. Um, right. Well, Kentrell, before we jump ahead, because I think the radio, uh, but right, it was these, it was Gordon Alpert who w- worked with Kentrell. 
who co-authored The Psychology of Radio. Uh, ah, nice. Yes. So that and was, the War of the Worlds was so early yes. on in radio. Like, they really wanted to see how and it that works. was under Tavistock. Yeah. That was one oh, of their yeah. big experiments. And they they had, like, this... I, I don't... I don't want to get this wrong because I was just reading this actually right before I had I had just seen this. Um, but it was something about like Kentrell had petitioned for funding for this, like repeatedly from the Rockefellers to release the story. And it, they wouldn't. So there's a huge the story delay. of War of the Worlds? Well, of what happened, the results. Like of the experiment. Yeah. Oh. And it, they wouldn't. Because so they didn't want to get busted, probably. I guess. Wow. Yeah, I have to look up the details of that. Like, I just saw that really quickly as I was uh, about to hop on. I was like, oh, interesting. Um, But I hadn't known that he was was petitioning, and it was like a few years, I think. Um, But yeah, so the, the radio then, of course, led to television. 1940, the Kintrell also authored The Invasion from Mars, a study in the psychology of panic. And this was the radio broadcast of the world, War of the World. Okay, so that's what it was. He had, right, that's why there was such a delay. It was a few years because he petitioned to the Rockefellers to fund the release of this. And apparently they were not very forthcoming. <laughs> yeah, wow. So that, but that does point to how quickly, if they didn't actually establish radio for this purpose, how quickly they wanted to exploit it. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exploited it. I, I mean, who knows what which one came first? I don't know if it was a co-option or if it was intended for. But yeah, so okay, then. Uh, and it I, is all about technology. It is, yeah. I mean, it's just that is the stepping stone. Even in Tragedy and Hope, it says that it's just technology. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, birth control, which is a technology, birth control yeah. pills. What that made that whole 60s inversion possible. Totally. Yeah, totally. And of course, it's so the just, same players, right? Margaret yeah. Mead and. Oh, what, and actually, saying one, of the, one of the definitions I saw of the Tavistock Clinic was the. Um, social, technical approach to systems design. Yeah. So I feel like I was looking for modern articles of them contributing to what used to be called digital cities is now 15-minute cities. Yes. And I believe I'm, I'm looking for the smoking gun, and I feel like they must be behind and connected to that, the labor unrest that is absolutely sweeping the Western world right now for no good reason, I think. And I feel like labor unrest and labor unions are always used to uh, to make labor too expensive for the industry and give industry justification to switch to automation. Yep. So that's that's a socio-technical approach to yeah. society itself. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, and this this was a little bit later, but it was uh, yeah. So they were saying they were trying. They did the in- international standards organization which was essentially just an indoctrination program to get everybody globally on board. Um, but they began a new journal titled Evolution, Evaluation. This was ni- much later. This is 1995. But it, it speaks to your point because the the Institute and the European Commission worked to research the use of smart cards. And smart cards were essentially like a passport for work. 
When yeah. when was this? 1995 is when the research for it began. Right. So the smart cards were used to be identification for potential employment to allow the holder to be easily identified as part of the group. If you had one, employment opportunities would abound. Without one, you would be greatly limited. The smart card study was carried out in the U.S. and parts of Europe. The project project involved assessing and validating students' skills with information placed on personal skills smart cards, which would become real passports to employment. Wow. I know. Well, I mean, they didn't do it like that, but they're, I'm sure that's what these like employment portals serve that function, Well, where I, it's just all AI, like you can't. Yeah. My daughter was looking for a job. She's like, it's just, it, they're just box checking. You don't get to talk. I was like, go door to door. Go to different coffee shops and whatever. She's like, no, it's online. I'm like, just go. Just <laughs> yeah. go. You know, they can't tell from the box you checked. Yeah. So I think though, I, they, they may not have implemented that, but now because the technology is advanced beyond so far beyond that, what they're doing with the kids is that they're doing all like through the SEL and this tech ed, I, I think what they're doing, they're essentially kind of mining them to figure out how they can then create a control grid and put you into specific uh, career paths. And I, I think that's really what they're trying to do, but they're trying to do it in a uh, transhumanist model. So, the, but people are going to be locked out of opportunities because they're going to steer them so specifically from a really young age. And I think that's what they're mining them to do. And they're also going to lock them out of certain things because they're doing all of this. They're tying, and this is not just in public schools because any, this is such the the fallacy of the whole like, you know, choice. If you go to a private yeah. school and school yeah, choice, yeah. it's it's all such a lie, unfortunately. Um, and it, it really pains me to say that. I created a board for school choice when I was in sixth grade. So I, I really- Oh, and it's still, it's day. an illusion? You think that's an illusion? Because public-private partnerships. So oh yes, totally. yeah, yeah, yeah. like the charter schools. Yeah, exactly. Who's getting? Who's pulling the string? Condoleezza Rice advocates for the charter schools to the Council of Foreign Relations. It's a CFR project. Oh yes, yes, yeah. Um, and who was it? Who was part of the CFR and part of? Uh, I think it was Reese. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go back and look. But one of these Tavistock members was like a member of all of those. Um, but yeah, so the. Uh, they're doing it now where they're putting in all these mental health checks and that's going to, so they're going to be doing personality assessments in to the kids in schools. And that will, I mean, one, it oh, yes. on them forever, um, but yes. it, it also classifies them into, I think what they're doing, they're exporting all of the uh, testing and the systems that they, the compartmentalization they've done in the military. I think they use the military as a testing ground. Yes. And Definitely. now they're they're exporting it to the masses, and they're using doing it through the schools. But they're going to create a very uh, controlled, stratified workforce. That's I think. So I think that I I say this because the smart cards looked like the initial testing ground for that. But yep. now they've so, the technology has so far exceeded that they don't need smart cards. Interesting. Well, <laughs> that's just my I theory. Would, but yeah, I I would. I, I do want to know more about that if you if you come up upon anything yeah. else because I feel like the whole I when I did the a lot of research into 15 minute cities they said we've been trying to get we used to call them digital cities we've been trying to get people to work from home or from yeah. little community centers near them 
digitally for a really long time, but employers absolutely would not budge. Then COVID came along and we were able to do that finally. And it seems to me, and then you had like labor shortages, which Uh seems very bizarre. And now we have like, uh, we're going to, the hyperinflation is, or high inflation is going to get people to want more wages, maybe fueling this labor unrest. But the labor unrest was starting before inflation really hit. And And I have to believe there's a smoking gun there where, this is all connected to what you're talking about. I think that, I think it is. And I mean, to me, COVID was like the ultimate mass scale trauma-based mind control. I, I think yes. that, that comes out of the shell shock therapy research. It comes out of all of this Tavistock research on how to manipulate the masses and also through the groups, right? They created the what they call segmentation. And so then now you have these different uh, groups that are, uh, where they identify within these specific groups, and now they can control you because the what the the purpose of segmentation was to assess where individuals would develop irrational thought processes, and a lot of it was done by immersing them in uh, in groups and factions, and they through COVID. So it's like you get your own risk pool, yeah. like an insurance, like it's highly. But there was an article, like a limited hangout type article in Quartz you know, magazine online, whatever it was, that said the NSA roots of Google, ha ha ha, you know, whatever. And it talks about how it was really, what they want to do is create birds of a feather groups. And I don't know if it said it expressly in the article or if I just read between the lines that AI would be used to be where you are the only actual human being in your birds of a feather group. Mm -hmm. And once they do that, they can actually manipulate, everybody could be a patsy then, yeah. And, well, and that is- the, the best psych insights you could ever have isn't what, like Facebook, it's Google searches. So what right. you put about yourself isn't a full picture of you. It's That's really what you think of you. Right. But the Google searches is what you think. Right, right. Because they, they, uh, they're feeding you the information, so it's a... Well, and it's yeah. it's how your brain is working. So as you go down, like you sit there and you do your research and you're like, oh, what is birds of a feather? You know, whatever. Yeah. And then eventually wherever you have gone, whatever path, whatever bandersnatch path you took to get to the end, yes, they get you to the end. They give you that propaganda, but they have gotten a tremendous insight into how your mind works. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Through the search history is uh, what I was getting from that. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's totally accurate, right? Because uh they're they're seeing the associations that you make. What well, what is it that you Yeah, I mean that's on, what do you follow? That's powerful. Yeah. And actually what I'm going to do to follow up on that labor thing is if you look at I'm sure you've seen it on the World Economic Forum website and I used to just marvel at the arrogance of these titles, but one it'll be shaping the future of. Yeah. And then it'll say I, of of education, of food. I'm sure there's one of labor. I'm uh, sure and there is. I'll have to go read that oh, and, and, see, and see if see what yeah. they're doing. Because yeah. that is definitely Tavistock connected. Because of the w- w- we went back. I mean, at least the Kissinger dots connect those two. But there's probably many, many dots that connect Tavistock with World Economic Forum. Oh yeah, no, they're they're definitely well, well. There's the World Health Organization. There's the World. Uh, Health Federation. I mean, there are all of those connections, which we have the overlaps of people who are in Tavistock who are also in those. So that's typically how, like a lot of times I try to find a direct connection to these groups, but it's typically not 
like the groups are connected, but they try to separate the, the entities themselves. But what you often find is the same people are in both. And or they they segment it so it isn't so obvious. So for example, skull and bones. Mm-hmm. One of the bushes, I think George Bush W. Mm-hmm. The son was in it, but I don't think H.W. Bush was actually in Skull and Bones or vice versa. But like they don't always have every single person. I think they like to not have the same person members of both. Of Maybe both. have like a husband and wife, you know, where the husband is one and the wife is in the other. Yeah. You know, like connections like that where you can't actually just see it on a piece of paper. Because the CFR membership roster is pretty, pretty shocking. <laughs> CFR, it, oh, it is. Membership, like you can go to CFR and look, and you see people like, it freak you out, like Tulsi Gabbard was on there and yep. um, Heidi Cruz. And, you know, there's just a lot of people that, you know, I mean, Coleman would say it's not all of them. That's just the sanctum, not the sanctum sanctorum. Right. And that you need the innermost is where yeah. it's really all and happening. I think that's true because I've talked to people who are members of actually the CFR, actually, and they don't know. Um, no. A lot and of they them, think you're crazy. They or think you're stupid. crazy. They, they think, think you're an ignorant plebe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a pleb. Yeah, they do. Yeah. It's interesting. I have talked to them, and they're just like, no, that's not what we do. And I'm like, Yeah, well, you just don't know that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they don't know. They have no idea. They think they're doing good, which is fine. Like, And in many ways, maybe they are. It is logical, whatever. But no, that's why once in a while I like throw out my credentials because they're like, mainstream status and like, I'm not a crazy idiot, whatever. (laughs) Then I just sound delusional or braggy or whatever. It doesn't work. You can't, there's no, there's no bridging that gap. No way. No, no. They're never going to get it. But anyway, okay. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I think someone was saying uh, the mass formation psychosis. So that, that really comes out of, that does come out of Tavstock also. There's the whole, uh, Wilford Byan was the one who did like, he was one of the, uh, forerunners Tavistock as well, and uh, of the clinic, and he he did the whole group dynamics. That's uh, like the psych- psychical research was his. I have to go back into my notes again, um, but he was the one who creates like all the the research on group dynamics. That which is kind of like the whole platform of Tavistock. I mean, even when you look at their website now, it's that's what most of it's about. But it was a uh, then they took that concept and that paradigm, and it was developed by was it A. K. A. Kenneth Rice, um, and he was working on all this group therapy and group dynamic research. And then he cre- paired up with uh, Margaret Rioche, who is a psychotherapist and brought the A.K. Rice Institute to the United States to continue that work here. So a lot of, not to say the Tavistock doesn't have a large influence, you know, from the U.K. here, it does in the United States, but they actually set up shop here in the United States under the A.K. Rice Institute. Um, I, I just think that's worth noting. Um, and they're, the, the research they're doing is pretty interesting too. It's where the, a lot of, I think all of this, the terms that we get, of course, that when you look at the the origins of the uses of these words, I don't know that you can find it, but when you look at the, the things that they were studying and uh, 
the the results of these studies. I think that this is where they get things like the DEI, the ESG, all of this type of diversity inclusion. I think it comes out of these group dynamic research. And because all a lot of the big corporations are required to take these group dynamic trainings. So these trainings are very similar to like Esalen, right? Yeah, and, and I would go back to what you said before about these things are like back and forth interactive in that they, I think they probably determined a long time ago, like they determined that war was such an important cultural change agent. They probably realized, and I think Gustave Le Bon or whatever was writing 100 years ago would write about group dynamics as the way, crowds in power, Elias Kennedy, Mm -hmm. that you have to have the group, you have to have, that's how you control the individual. And once they realized unequivocally that that was the best way to get someone to, like, peer, to get back to what we were talking about in the beginning, to that peer pressure was the best way to get people to abandon their their, their beliefs. closely held beliefs, yep. then they have to make sure everybody's in a group all the time. They have to make sure everybody's institutionalized, which Brzezinski talks about in Crisis of Democracy. He says, mm-hmm. well, in order to get past democracy, we need to make sure that everybody is part of a group where they really don't have any say. Like, they need to be part of a labor union. They need to be part of a corporation. They need to be part of a university. They always have to be in an institution that is really rather not democratic, and they have to be. They have to think that their interests are fully aligned with that group because their identity is yep. becomes a part of that group. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then they're so much easier to control because now you're not dealing with the individual. Somebody's now- And these guys are way ahead of it because they've been studying group dynamics. They've been studying group control. It's not something that you can with your own senses. It's like, oh, I know what it, how, it, how to get to mom. Just, you know, tell her she's pretty. Like, you know, right. it's just, it's, you, don't, you don't have any way of seeing. It's, and it's even uh, probably harder to recognize the manipulation when it's in a group context because you're just looking to the people next to you and you're like, sure, let's go. Let's go to that concert or whatever. Right. And, and, but as an individual, you would see, you would be able to see those techniques, but you, there's just, you know, it's, it's very interesting, very clever. It's very clever and very maniacal. Um, yes. we'll get, we'll get to the sixties and, and the seventies in a bit. I mean, it's very interesting. Just like the, the Grateful Dead there, right. Eric Triss was one of the primary, uh, psychologists for the Tavistock Institute. His son was Alan Triss, who became the producer of the Grateful Dead, who was also working with, uh, Bateson, who, uh, and R.D. Lang, also members of the Tavistock who were doing all these LSD experiments, so there's definitely connections there. But I found the, the, the exact quote uh, from Max Mason that I was looking for before. The social sciences will concern themselves with the rationalization of social control, the control of human behavior. He was the uh, advisor for the Rockefellers. And this is what led to the Rockefellers giving the grant to become the, the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations. Oh, interesting. So they will um, concern themselves with the rationalization of social control, the control of human behavior. Yeah, yes. and, and the human behavior through society. Yeah, they mm-hmm. do not. The individual is not something they need to worry about if they, especially if they can eradicate it. Right. Exactly. Which is essentially what their what their focus is. Um, so, which then, is why you don't want religion, like if you a Christianity which has free will. Well, yeah. Right. So you, it, I, I'm, I used to say that, but now I, I'm careful to specify 
they don't want Judeo-Christian religion. Or I, I would oh. probably even argue. So like, you totally you agreed with the Milner Fabian book about the Milner Fabian conspiracy, the book that you and I talked about. The punchline to my shock and amazement was the uh, they like Islam because it's you know as a social control. Well, I was going to say I actually I, I would say really it's all the Abrahamic faiths because I think uh, Islamic the religion still believes in free will, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, no, so I, I think it's really they don't want any of the Abrahamic faiths, anything that you know believe. Oh, wow! Being endowed okay. with. I think they use the, I think they use Muslims just to pit against each other because so much of the Islamic religion has been distorted as well. I mean, I until recently didn't even realize how similar the Quran is actually to uh, the Bible. There's a lot of similarities. You know, they they split off in terms of a kind of similar to Judaism where they they have different views on who Christ was, but they right. well the behavior. My mother, uh, her neighbors are Muslim, and mm. they w- really stick to their moral tenets. I mean, they revere her as like an elder. They bring her food. They they mm. look out for her and stuff. And yeah. she has nine kids or seven now, but <laughs> you know. But they, but they. It's obvious that it's a moral thing. And my father used to be like that too, as a Catholic. Like he would go out of his yeah. way to do corporal works of mercy. He would go out yep. of his way to visit the sick and everything like that. Like he would go out of his way to get his brownie points, which I respect and sure, hope sure. to emulate. But like I recognize that stuff in the Muslim faith. And I was just saying that what that Fabian conspiracy right, no, not I- only undermines the culture, but also because there is a little bit more of the authoritarian thing yeah. because. So we have this, we're allowed to rebel against authority, right. like secular authority, in favor of our religious authority. Sure. And that and the reason that's even an issue is because we have these melting pots where we at which is like historically probably unusual to have countries that have every different kind of, you know, creed as well as atheism all in the same place, trying to live under the same laws and laws that are not limited simply to secular interaction. They actually do have a lot of morality in them. This is the one distinction that I have now come to find very important and significant because I I think atheism and atheists have become the boogeyman. I don't actually, and it's to avert any attention to the esoteric, occultic type of religion or pagan religious beliefs. So that's why I say I don't actually think that it's not religious. It's just not Judeo-Christian. Right, oh, interesting. That's yeah. really because I really think that their worldview is kind of religious. They believe in it's just much more akin to a, well, environmentalism is kind of pagan, very much so. Yeah, so well, the environmentalist, but the and so there's Tavistock has a lot of connections to the Club of Rome as well, um, and all of these are predicated on a very eugenics or Malthusian principle. But the Club of Rome, I mean, they admitted in their documents that it was propaganda. So they wrote The Limits of Growth in 1972, right? They then, in 1992, they wrote, you have it, there you go. <laughs> right. Within reach. I know, it's an addiction. I really have <laughs> yeah, like the yeah. libertarian oh, book fetish. It's messed up. It's a yeah, fetish. I get it. <laughs> no. I, so I tried to buy, actually, um, the- Books? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Tavistock books on uh, the, the social engineering books. I, I forgot what they're called. I, I had linked it, I think, to you. And yeah. uh, they- um, the the one from the original one, I could only find one copy, and that one was actually pretty cheap. 
but it won't get here till the end of October. But the other two volumes are over $100 each. And they're the, they're their actual, you know, ma- uh, like manuscripts from Tavistock. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah, but they're they're really well. The Tavistock book that Dr. John Coleman wrote is over five thousand dollars, almost five thousand dollars on on Amazon. Oh snap! Really? Because I don't think I have that one. So Dang I don't it. have it, but I printed it out. So oh, you know, sometimes I think these expensive books will hold their value. So you could even uh, yes. Yeah. So my friend John Kleisik, who wrote this book, he actually has the Tavistock book. Um, I don't, but I printed it out. Wow. We, wow. (laughs) Nice. So I, but I told him he's got like a bunch of books that he inherited from Charlotte is a bitten. And I told him he never needs money (laughs) that he would be a pretty rich man if he needed to sell his books. Wow. (laughs) Which I'm sure he has no interest in doing, but. I, I just, you know, I was just being funny because I was like, you have all these originals. Yeah. And like, wow. How do you have those books? Um, she helped Alex Jones make his bones for sure. Yeah, exactly. Remember that great interview? Boy, the, they really laid foundation for him to no. have some credibility in the in the truth community. For sure. Um I don't remember where I was going with that, but... Uh, uh, well, the, we were talking about group dynamics. Yes. And... Totally uh, based. I went on a whole tangent. Well, you, Nor- Nelson Aldrich Rockefeller was the last thing I wrote down, but that was uh, a while ago. No, no, this was... Uh, before, In the 50s was MK Ultra. MK Ultra. And we were headed towards... I was looking for Marianne Faithful and that type right. of thing, but you were... Yep. Uh, this was... No, it was, it was something before then when I was talking about the, the grant... That became the Rockefeller. I don't know. Uh, I'll remember it. It'll come back. Uh, uh, I just have Rawling Reese. Just made sure he infiltrated church and education. But okay, Birds of a Feather. Hmm. No, I don't know where it was at. With all right, I know. I don't. I, I, all right. Well, let's do sixties. Okay. Well, I want before we get to sixties, just a couple of really quick things. With okay, so you had the. Uh, Kurt Lewin joined. The- I wonder if that's any relation to Leonard Lewin, who wrote Report from Iron Mountain. I don't know. It might be. You never know. It might be. Um, yeah, so somebody said you can download the digital copy. Yeah, which that's what I did with Tavistock. I read it like three times, but it's in uh, the digital copy. Um, but that's why I printed that out. So, okay, so R- Kurt Lewin also uh, had the Research Center for Group Dynamics, right, at the University of Michigan. So they started creating all of these different centers also in the United States. Like Cartwright was also a psychologist who uh, she did a lot of like dream studies and uh, I forgot which university. Oh, the Institute for Social Research in the United States. You know, that was a, an offshoot of the Frankfurt School. So there's a lot of overlap between mm-hmm. the Fabian Socialists and the Frankfurt School through Tavistock. Was that the Columbia thing, Institute for Social Research? Was that, that was initially, but then they set up shop in Michigan. They they went mm-hmm. and set up a bunch of them. And Cartwright sent, set up the one, I want to say in Michigan, uh, the University of Michigan, led to the, jur- the journal Human Relations. And that started at the University of Michigan. Um all right, we're so a couple of things we're going to overcoming. So the first volume was overcoming resistance to change and a comparison aims of 
the Hitler Youth and the Boy Scouts of America. So the Boy Scouts. Oh my gosh. The Boy Scouts were, they were doing a lot of research on, uh, you know, like uh, submission to authority. Wow. And yeah. Wow. That doesn't, that's not to say the Boy Scouts are a bad thing, but they definitely were a testing ground. For right, them. right, right. Yeah. Uh, right, yeah, he, they, they even say that. They say that does not mean the Boy Scouts of America were inherently <laughs> a bad organization. It just means that part of the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations research, they were using aspects of the Boy Scouts as like a petri dish. Um, okay, so let's see, where else? I just want to make sure before we get to the 60s, there were a whole bunch of things that the office of the OS, CIA before, right, 1947, Operation Paperclip, um, Okay, so Lewin founded the Research Center for Group Dynamics in 1946. And then the next year, his research along with the division of the National Education Association began um, and the National Training Laboratories. So this is kind of where that convergence happens with the education system and the indoctrination. A lot of it was done through Tavistock, through John Dewey, through Kurt Lewin, uh, through this research center for group dynamics, the training groups, right, where group consensus is facilitated by trained individuals. Uh, okay, here, this is... Oh, that's we, the Delphi technique. Yeah. The Delphi technique that from Rand Corporation, yes. which I think was from the 60s. Rand of how was, to and build Rand consensus. is one of the, like, right under Tavistock. Wow. So, so one of the things, when you were talking about how wartime was, you know, largely... Create they it creates like this destabilization and you know in the society I think that's all very true and I think there's definitely several agendas that are accomplished like you know depopulation uh, destabilization demoralization of course economic decline however also what do they do remember in the very beginning I was talking about how they put everything under the guise of defense. When they do that, they have this carte blanche, like black ops budget, and they do so much of this human psychological testing. Uh, psychological warfare research is under, and these think tanks, RAND is one of the primary ones. RAND's and the Stanford Institute, uh, Stanford Research Institute, and both of those are under Tavistock. Stanford Research Institute, aka Siri. Yes. Siri came out of the Stanford Research Institute and it's like literally named after itself. Oh my gosh, my phone went on because I said her name. Oh. I literally, the phone started Hi, Siri. wiggling. Uh, and I'm sure <laughs> <Yes>. she's listening. <laughs> um, oh, wow, that's so freaky. Uh, yes, so, okay. Um, yes, they're all connected. Keep going. Yes, they are all connected. Um, then, oh, right, okay, this one I really wanted to address is the sensitivity. Activity training is referred to as brainwashing. The uh, National uh, Training, uh, was it the National Training Laboratory, conducted programs relative to Tavistock, such as the NTL and Tavistock, two traditions of group work. Their programming was rethinking and planning for organizational change and the Tavistock Task Working Conference. But it, I, I thought the part that was really relevant was the sensitivity training that they literally call brainwashing. Wow. Because that, that's what they do, right? And this is what I talk about. I'm in the process. This is the, the book I'm actually working on. It's called Ooh. The Compassion Trap. And it's where they exploit the best aspects of humanity in order to, uh, you know, 
put people into these different groups and make them protective of their group. And this is this is how they do it. They do it through the sensitivity, right? You you want to be compassionate to these people, and then it creates the otherism. And this is, but that's just for some of the groups because I think it was in Miriam's little blurb there on Substack where she said you take the some groups and you make them protective like that, and then you take other groups and make them feel guilty. So they also feel protected. Well, yeah, and the guilt is part of that protection, right? It's because it's still appealing to this sensitivity, uh, the compassion, yeah. this, this uh, desire. This is where the virtue signal com- comes out of, right? This desire to want to appear like you're doing good. Although most of the time, all of the things that they tell you to do and the people that they purport to be helping, you're actually hurting them in the process. Well, you, not only are they hurting them, but this secular humanism breaks down mm-hmm. because if you uh, need to say that human beings are are worthwhile and that's why you're helping them, then as soon as they act like human beings, they're going to lose your support. And that happens a lot with these programs. They go yep. awry and they withdraw support, and that's what's so disruptive. So, and then you get the guilt cycle comes back. Totally. Yeah, totally. Um, so, okay, then after they published the, they began publishing the Human Relations Journal as uh, they p- published some of their titles were some principles of mass persuasion. This was by Doran Cartwright. I just remember uh, Cartwright because of my dream research in high school, and she was involved in a lot of uh, dream analysis. Dream analysis. Um, but she was she, here. They say that she she helped establish the Institute for Social Research, and it was at University of Michigan. I wasn't sure about that. It was. Um, so here's one of the quotes she reveals. It's conceivable that one persuasive person could, through the use of mass media, bend the world's population to his will. The so charismatic personality right. of Brzezinski. Exactly. The charismatic leader. The charismatic leaders. Exactly. Um, uh, let me make sure that I'm not mixing things. I'm sure I am, but that's okay. Uh, let's see. Next. I don't know where I'm putting everything. Um, This article describes the, right, the modification of cognitive structure in individuals by the means of mass media and how a person can be induced to to voluntarily do something that he would not otherwise do. Totally. Let's, Let's go protest. Right. Seven years after Cartwright's article appeared, Prominent psychiatrist Artie Lang, this is the one who was involved in all the yep. LSD uh, experiments, was appointed as senior registrar at the Tavistock Clinton. That was in 1956, years after he left the British Army Psychiatric Unit. So again, it's all through, and, and so many of these people were, they even had like a whole wartime uh, commission. Like a lot of these members of Tavistock were involved in either intelligence or psychological operations, but those are all kind of covert. And so through that, then they get recruited out into the public sphere under the guise of, you know, they're helping people. Um, But they definitely use soldiers for, I mean, LSD, that's well documented as the, I mean, if if you watch those old videos of people on LSD, they're soldiers. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I, and I think it's because they have so much purview over the soldiers. They pretty much yeah. They and, you know you do whatever they tell you to do. Vaccines, exactly. pills, speed, whatever. Totally. So he began. So it was in 1960 that he began experimenting with the LSD, and he became family therapist in 62. 
at, at the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations, and that's where he met Bateson. And Bateson was also involved in uh, LSD experiments and hallucin- the MK Ultra hallucinogenic product project. Um, and he was also in he was in the OSS before he became part of the CIA. Yeah, so now we have uh, the Tavistock and Bateson and MK Ultra engineer collaborating together. So if that, and then. Uh, the other connection that was interesting with Bateson was because he and Margaret Mead's daughter, Catherine Bateson, along with Jean Houston, helped Hillary Clinton write the It Takes a Village book. Hmm. Yeah, that one scares me because I think it's a nice idea, actually. The title is a nice idea, you know what I mean? It's nice to have to think that we're all in it together and that we can provide a good community for our children to grow up and thrive. Just the title. The difference is when that community is under, is a product of culture creation that's been contrived versus an organic, you know, tribal or. Yes. Where you're probably actually related to each other. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Um, So then. And it's not a village that they're talking about. There's no global village. Right. That's an oxymoron. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. That's such an oxymoron. A global village. Exactly. Um, so this is a okay. So senior member. This is where Olensky comes in. Senior member Fred Emery, who uh, he was senior member of Tavistock, who wrote theories of social tur- turbulence. So this is where Olensky gets his uh, concept of never let a crisis go to waste. Mm-hmm. It comes out of the the social turbulence, which. Uh, he explained more fully in his uh, other article, which was Futures Were In, and that was later. That was in 1975. Um, but crisis was the foundation of the Emory model, and the theory was that individuals or societies are faced with a series of crises that will attempt to reduce the tension by adaptation and eventually psychological retreat, as if anesthetized, which led to what Emory calls segmentation. So this is where you mm-hmm. get that, yeah. Um, and then segmentation is what we see today, right? Everyone's divided into different segments to keep us from unifying. Um, and this is and me- the media is delivered in silos. I call it silos, and it I've seen silos. this before. Authors say this, and I, I notice it on Fox and CNN. Yeah, and stuff. I, they're I, very I careful. I didn't even know people. Yeah, we're saying it, but yeah, I agree. Yeah. They're very careful to make sure that the streams don't cross. Like you can say things in one avenue. And and I, I think I got that insight. I believe it was Alfred McCoy writing the politics of heroin in Southeast Asia. I think it was him saying that he that, that was vetted by the CIA. They would not let him, you know, and understandably so, if even if what you see is what you get, the CIA wouldn't let him write about the politics of heroin in Southeast Asia without screening it. And they pulled some things out and they said, We're not telling you you can never say this. We're just telling you you can't say it in this book. This book will be strictly defined by this. And then if you want to do a book on that other subject, that's okay. But there will be no holistic approach to this oh. thing. And I remember thinking, like, that's why they you'll see something really shocking on, on one place, but you will not see it. It won't cross over. That's why I think the powers that be. connect the dots. Right. That's why podcasting, as much as I, I see the value in it, in many, many ways of opening eyes, like I can see it myself compared to radio. Because when I was on the radio, people who never heard what I was saying before were listening and also calling. So then you would hear the the perspective of an African immigrant 
mm-hmm. and it would counter whatever official narrative was coming at the top of the hour from the news. Yeah. That's like, no, that's not how it is. That's not how I feel. Don't tell yeah. me how I feel. A lot, a lot of that. And uh, and that's why, that's when I noticed that it was, it's okay for me to say stuff on a podcast, but it's not, it was not okay on the radio. Not Ooh. just because of the reach. Right. Oh, that's very interesting. Well, um, I I did a podcast not too long ago with uh, Jay Dyer. We talked about the classical liberal Overton window. And mm-hmm. I it was really fascinating in uh, light of the alternative media because a lot of people do fall into that. But then when you kind of step outside of that window is when you get really censored and shadow banned and, uh, you know, ostracized and pariahed. So, yes. And it, it, to talk about the two, uh, the dialectical uh, paradigm of the Overton window, which is like the CIA libertarianism versus CIA Marxism. Yes, yes. And I, and I do, I was going to say, like, it's the, you can't step off that libertarian thing. I actually felt it when I criticized Trump or if I say anything about Julian Assange. Like, I think people really... I remember once when I, in the early days when I was like, yeah, Edward Snowden is obviously, you know, they didn't, they made a movie. They had, it's so ridiculous. The story is ridiculous. It definitely <laughs> isn't what you see is what you get. And people were like, he's a hero. Like, he's right. fake. He's fake. He still has the same, I predicted he would have the same haircut and glasses his entire public life. And he did. Because people he lives a regular life. You should have pardoned them. Like, they're still saying that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, Ross Ulbricht now, on the other hand, doesn't get anywhere near the press that Julian Assange, and he should be pardoned. Do you even know who he is? I don't, actually. He was the one who was, um, he was absolutely railroaded and set up by the Secret Service and whoever else for the Silk Road, the dark webs or whatever, just, just, it was just, um, um, I believe it was a marketplace, and they, they're like, oh, you, on your marketplace, somebody sold drugs, which killed a 13-year-old, and he's he's serving, like, consecutive life sentences for murder. And all he did was have this platform, and at, at one point, they got away from him, like, a billion Bitcoin. And two of the guys, two of the investigators on his case, went to jail for malfeasance in his case, and that was not permitted as evidence in his own trial. Wow. Now that's Ross Ulbricht. So that he's the guy Trump should have pardoned. Right. I he's the guy who's incarcerated. Yes. Yeah, no. And he was, it's really a, tra- it's a heartbreaking story. Heartbreaking. I have a lot of questions for Trump. Yeah. Um, so, but I'm just saying, I so I never, <laughs> yeah, I never, I, I felt nervous ever, not nervous, but like, I felt like I was, not going to be well received if right, I right. hit hit that stuff because it was giving people hope, but beware false hope. Yes. You know, at least Ron Paul was was expressing he didn't give a, a lot co- of hope at all. <laughs> well, and even if he did have it, but I mean he he was expressing a coherent ideology which included restraint on government that we already have as if you want to say there's a social contract, that is actually it. It's a highly limited one through the Bill of Rights. There's not even if he was there to 
to steal votes from Republicans. It doesn't matter. He did a lot of good. And I think they took that zeitgeist. Well, he didn't and they, water anything down. Trying. I mean, he like went over so many people's head and he's just like, here's the information. And, you know, I don't really care if you receive it or not, because eventually maybe you will. But which is great. Right. He's like, here's the truth. I'm just going to drop it on you, which is great. And in hindsight, it was incredibly valuable. I think, you know, what he did uh, for posterity actually in some ways, it was even more valuable than at the time because people, a lot of people just weren't ready to receive it. But now, in hindsight, a lot of people are like, oh, my gosh, like what he was saying. Now people are starting to look into what he was actually saying back then. Um, you know, if you're yeah. like, like Edward Griffin, too, you know, and that was back in the 60s. Yes. But yeah. Um, but like 1939, Bertrand Russell organizes the World League for Sexual Reform. And one of the topics was sex change operations and eugenics. <laughs> and he did that with George Bernard Shaw and Sigmund Freud. So Bernard Shaw, of course, people remember like the, you know, uh, Dorian Gray. They also, he was a member of the Fabian Society. Um, and of course, it was also with, uh, yeah, with Sigmund Freud, Bernie's uh, uncle. And what else was right at that time? Uh, but I just thought it was really interesting. They were talking about sex change operations even back then. This is in 19. 19- I remember that Swedish person. Yes. Remember that first one? That was olden times. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, they pick someone fabulous. Right. You know what I mean? And, and it's just, it's like, oh, this is your fantasy. This, this, you could be this gorgeous person. Right. Um, yeah, of course. And to put it up, uh, and this is the model of what you can be. I, 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 Miss like, Universe. I think Miss Universe was was born Mr. Universe, I think. Yeah. It annoys me, I have to say just for the record, it annoys me that the best women are now men. Like the winningest Jeopardy female, it was a guy. Where are the feminists? So I, think I know. This, so this is what exactly where I was going to go with this. One of the reasons I, wa- I really wanted to bring that up is because these people who say that it's not – the, the term, the modern term, slippery slope. But really, I don't even like to use that term. I would just say that it's, it, call it what it is, it's Fabian incrementalism. That's really what this is, right? So they Towards started, transhumanism or what? Yeah, so they, well, yeah, I, that's what I think. So they started, Tavistock was very invested in women's liberation and they did it intentionally to destroy the family and overthrow Western civilization. Uh, because they thought that it would be an easier way to, you know, control the population. And, of course, they had to take women down because they recognized that women were empowered through uh, Christianity and not in the way that feminists say they're empowered, uh, but really in, you know, the role of femininity that was given uh, credence and it was, yeah, it was I mean, value. We're the doctrinal center of the formation years. Exactly. So they wanted to overthrow all of that. But I really do think they had a goal of getting to this transgender, transhuman agenda. And people say, well, no, they didn't have that foresight. But you're looking at 1939, where they have this World Federation uh, for Sexual Reform, right? That's World League, sorry, for Sexual Reform. That's not that far after. I mean, it's before the Tavistock Institute was even developed. I mean, not that far after. So I think they really did. Because if you look at a lot of these, the, the worldviews of these people, if you're taking it from the mystics, the, you know, the pagans or 
the occults or Luciferian, they worship this hermaphroditic demiurge, right? That's right. That's what they worship. So they thought that that was the that was the ideal. That's the the role modeling. And so, and then of course you take that, and then you take these people who, and it, it, I mean, even back then, you had people talking about things like transhumanism and technological. Uh, you know, technocracy, essentially, of course, they didn't necessarily know what the the details of what the technology would look like, but they knew that they wanted a technological advancement that would be a replacement for these structures that we have now, you know, like the, that's why they pit the communists against the capitalists. Ultimately, they're paving the way to merge for a technocracy which I think they want to, like an AI high fork mind, you, you know, people like uh, Kurzweil, the singularity is near. I don't necessarily think we're in a simulation, but I think that that is their goal. They want to point us towards that. But they couldn't just start there. That would be way too radical for the common person to accept. They start with women's liberation. I think that's where pharma does come in quite a bit, like whether it's SSRIs or sex change stuff or, or transgender or whatever, or... Um, like diabetes, whatever, if you keep people on high-level meds like that, they have to be on the grid. They have to be plugged into the technocracy. Yeah, exactly. Um, Physically, have to. They have to. They're also... Thyroid problems. I feel like when people lose their thyroid, they're fine as long as they always take thyroid medicine. So you have a perpetual business model, right? And you yeah. also have a dependent population. Yeah, they know what people cannot go off the grid once they're on. And you have on. a tracking model because everything Pharma. in the medical system is digitized now. Uh, but I always said that about Obamacare. Even the selective yeah. service, no, there were, you don't have to get a social security card unless you're going to get a job. Even the selective service, unless you're whatever. But Obamacare, you have to register. You have you to have register. To register. So Not they- registering, doing nothing is a crime. This is a whole tangent, so we won't go there, but Ah, Maximus Company, Maximus Inc., is connected to Tavistock. They created the whole infrastructure for the database for Obamacare. Um, So that's, yeah, definitely was a huge I always thought that was about surveillance. Okay. So, yeah, so you feel like the transgender thing was part of that? I think it was part of their angle. 85 years ago. Yeah, I do think that it was part of... The, the Telios. I think that's kind of where they were yeah. going. They couldn't start there. They start, you know, with the women's lib and they break up the family and they start to change your your whole thought processes of what it is to be a woman. I know that's... And know, toxic masculinity at the I, same time. It's the same yeah. thing. It's oh, that yeah, you have to, it's, like, it's attack the power hand. position. Oh, yeah. It goes hand in hand. I mean, men are obviously being attacked as well. But you think about even terms like deadbeat dad. I'm pretty sure Tavistock had a role in creating that propaganda. And that was part of the feminist movement. Oh, well, I mean, there were, weren't there a lot of guys who abandoned their families or were they chased away? <clears throat> like, what do you think is untrue about that? Am I naive? Well, I think it's the messaging. So I'm not saying there's no such thing as a deadbeat dad. I mean, there's there's also like a, they use it to justify abortion. I will tell you that. Right, but so so I'm not I'm not saying that it doesn't exist. What I'm saying is that the messaging and the propaganda behind it. So I, the same goes for, of course, there are sociopathic whores. <laughs> you know, forgive me, but yeah, there yeah, are yeah, women yeah. who are really manipulative and who yeah, are yeah. totally conniving and self-serving and exploit 
men and exploit, you know, whatever they can. That exists, um, you know, but I think that what, but the messaging around, because you started to see it became so heavy handed in movies and commercials. Yes, like, yes, yes, yes. Nothing yes. right. They were just these fumbling. Yes, men are bad. And I've heard many men complain about how they're treated, you know, they're kicked out of their own houses and they have to pay for them and they don't get to see their kids. So I think there is definitely a And I also think it was created and manufactured in many ways because now you take women out of this role of where they were, uh, you know, the the modest, nurturing caretakers of the family. Supportive. a supporting yeah. role, but a main role, but a supporting role. Yeah. I mean, it, I don't, it, it's a supporting role, but in many a ways. support I mean, to the man. Like role. you have but your own like, role, but, but your role was supportive to that person. Exactly. That person got support from you. And it was and also then, integral yeah. because this is a partnership. That one, you know, every, if everybody plays their role, then both are elevated. I, uh, you know, I had right. a, I Jamie uh, Hanshaw was on uh, an episode I did recently. I think I just aired it today, but no, I, I it was the second one we did. I haven't aired it yet. But anyway, she said how she would watch Survivor and she would watch like, you know, who who's most likely to win. And she said that her observation that was that you had like some women who would succeed, some men, but when it was the married couple, they were unstoppable. And I really think that's how it was designed. It was, it was, it, it sounds like such a silly comment, but it was so profound to me because I think that's absolutely true when men and women, you know, combine forces and they celebrate their strengths and weaknesses. And Absolutely. I have seen that in my, what's happening right now. So my kids are going to college. They're kind of transitioning to adulthood out of the home. I bought this house, like uh, we were renting now, we bought this house and as we've had, I had to buy a lot of furniture because we were renting a furnished house. It was so weird. And anyway, so uh, I've had all these problems in new school for my special son and everything. And every once in a while, I'll say to my husband, like, oh, if you call like this, that'll feel different to them. And then I'll like, I'm, I'm at a, you know, I don't bug him every minute of every day, but I'm like, I'm kind of at a standstill here. I need you to call and just let them know that you're paying attention. And okay, that's like hardcore sexism. I understand that. However, I also noticed that he has in many ways like a different, because he's so out in the world all the time. If I need, like with the kids, I'm like, oh, this is someone, he, this person has to deal with a teacher or with the school. Like I, you need to talk to dad about that. Like I don't get, like, that's not where my experience has been the past 20 yeah. years. Um, one of them's joining, like, the radio. I'm like, that I can help you with. <laughs> yeah. But but I've absolutely noticed, and I think of, I think it was Noble House by James Clavell about, like, he, he always had, everybody was a team, a male-female team, because yin and yang is totally real. And yeah. even the workplace and cops, everything, he's like, everyone should be a male-female team. And I just, you know, maybe it sounds sexist, but I'm telling you, in my experience right now, we get so much more done if yes. we recognize the what who's going to be more effective doing certain things at critical junctures. And this is the whole lie of feminism that women were sold. They don't need a man. They can do everything a man can do. And when women start behaving in accordance with this lie, what happens to relationships? And how does that emasculate the men? So do I think it created deadbeat dads? I mean, not all of them. But yeah. Yeah, but I maybe mean, they didn't feel like they were valued. That's true. And also the emasculation of the men kind of does the same thing. I mean, there's, you know, if, if my husband weren't like, yeah, okay, I'll, you know, whatever. 
I'll take care of business. You're welcome. You know, if he wasn't comfortable in that role, if he didn't have that kind of a feeling of, you know, whatever, gravitas, whatever you want to call it, yeah. I, would, I wouldn't I would really get as much value from him. And I see my sister, my one sister, her husband was a truck driver and another sister was a single mom. And I just think, wow, that must have been really, really hard when you were down in the trenches and you had absolutely no backup whatsoever. You had no different angle to approach. Nobody who cared about the situation as much as you could actually, like, at least even be a sounding board for you. Yeah. It's invaluable. It's invaluable. Totally. And I, I think that's why they were so in, instrumental and so focused on this propaganda because now you've split people up. So now you've created a whole, uh, you've created more people who are less set up to fail, essentially. You're breaking yeah, up they're the just family and two dimensional, and you can't raise kids that way. It's so no. hard to, and I think that that, I mean, I actually blame like TikTok and stuff for the extreme lockdown, for the extreme mental health issues yeah. that I think adolescents are experiencing right now. Although they're but, also really instrumental in waking a lot of people up right now, I have to say. TikTok. Oh, and- yeah. that that Oh, TikTok? Because yeah. it's so bad. What? TikTok wakes people up because it's so bad or because it has... No, because uh, the people get videos on there. I mean, oh, TikTok really? got a lot. Yeah, and it's where oh. a lot of the younger generation, a lot of people are waking up from TikTok. Really? Because yeah. I just won't even look at it. Like, all I see is... Just, <laughs> I know, I didn't either, but I, I know yeah. that people are waking up from TikTok. Wow. It's crazy. All right, yeah. great. Let's use it against them. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, all right, so I right, so we know, probably should break because yeah, maybe uh, we should break, and maybe yes. we'll just go from uh, we'll just go from the start of uh, we'll just go from where we left off. But I'll yeah, I'll, I'll go back and listen to the last few minutes, and then we'll yeah. jump. Yeah, yeah, how fun! Well, it's so generous of you to. I know you're super super busy, and your research is great. No, really, like it's it's such a it's such a pleasure for me personally and and ha- thankfully you know, thousands of people will get to he- get the benefit of all your research but I'm really complimented and um, like it's a privilege to be the recipient of all this great research and knowledge and I just you just bring the enthusiasm and like when I see all the work that you do in getting people together and you know you're working on a book actually it's probably a good time to tell people what you are working on and how they can support you, how they can find you. Tell us everything that you want people to know. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I'll place the best place to find me. So you can go to whatever you prefer is CourtneyTurner.com. For those who are viewing, you can see how I spell my names a little bit different. So I say Courtney. It is pronounced Courtney, uh, but it's Courtney is how it spells. C-O-U-R-T-E-N-A-Y-T-U-R-N-E-R.com. And uh, you have all the things you can find there. I, at the end of every episode, I put all of the, I have like a lot of affiliates. I only, you know, do affiliates with products that I really support. Uh, so definitely that's a way that you can help support me. You could just donate, buy me a coffee. Uh, <laughs> that, that works too. I, I'm working on getting the next cause fest up and going. So definitely if you, we are looking for sponsors. So if you are interested in that, it is super expensive to do. And the last one, I'm super grateful for our sponsor, but we didn't get it till the week of, which made things much less organized than they could have been. Of course, it was also the first one. So it's always a learning curve, but that is creative artists uniting for the sovereignty of everyone. That's why we call it the cause fest. And it is because we don't want to have a stock artist. We want to support independent creative artists because they're so valuable to the culture. That is part of why they use them for culture creation and socially engineering the masses. So uh, that you can go to rebelsforcause.com. So it's rebels, plural, 
four spelled out, F-O-R, and then cause.com. But you could also go to CourtneyTurner.com and go to Aerial and Speaking Events, and it'll link you right there. We're looking to do that in the middle of November, so possibly the weekend of November 11th or the following weekend of uh, November 18th. But that is still hinging upon sponsors and venues. And, uh, yeah, I don't know what whatever you know like share my stuff i'm at episode i think we just released episode 310 or something Whoa. yeah so that's in uh like a little over two years where yeah and I, and I i see your stuff on rumble a lot you think that's the best place to go is everything rumble there? is great i'm on rumble i'm on rockfin i'm really everywhere except for i'm on the audio platforms really all of them uh the it's really just youtube i don't get to much because yeah yeah right I know the feeling (laughs) well I'm so glad you Courtney Turner are on our side and that your mother hung up on that phone call when you were seven um it's really great I just love that I love really smart uh serious professional people on our side fighting the good fight so I really appreciate that thank you so much for being here and uh that's it for now thank you all for listening this is monica perez and this has been a a live dive on deep dives with monica perez